Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live, multi-speed technology is the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah show kicks off this hour. Our first email comes in from Steve. Steve writes in and says, Hi Noah, love the show. I listen every week and appreciate what you do for the community. I recently bought a second wireless headset, and which is the exact same model as my previous one, the MPOW Air 2.4 GHz wireless gaming headset. I like these headsets and they work great. However, one thing I fail to consider is that they have the same identification in GNOME Sound. That means that I'm never really sure which headset is active. Now, I'm comfortable having to muck around with things like UDEV. However, I have no idea how to actually write the rules myself. Hopefully, there is an easier way. If you had two of the exact same units in GNOME, how would you go about distinguishing them? Uh, Steve, so what I, I guess here's the way that I would go about that. What I would do is try to get them a unique name. And if you can get them a unique namespace, then all of a sudden you'll know, hey, this thing is worth I'm referencing this one or I'm referencing that one. Uh, and so the way that I would go about doing that, I actually took a little bit of um, a little bit of digging, but I, th- I think I found the answer here. It is uh, there's a, a command you can run. It, it, it's uh, it is PACMD space update dash sync dash prop list space also underscore output colon or dot USB C. And then you would put the name of that device. And uh I'll put a link for you in the show notes um, that has the entire command. It's actually the more I'm looking at it. It's kind of loud, kind of obtrusive to to try and read on air. But um, there is a command that you can that you can rename the device. And so then uh, in the rest of your system, it will just show up and you can say headset one or headset two, Bluetooth headset, backup headset, however it is that you want to, uh, however it is you want to name it. Now, I'll go out and say that. I purchased the MPOW headset. I don't know if I I don't have the wireless one, but I've purchased the smaller ones for my kids, and they've been absolutely fantastic. I also purchased um, some hearing protection when I go out shooting from MPOW, and I've been very happy with that as well. So I'm as an aside to your question, and like I say, I will have that command string uh, for you in the show show notes at podcast.asnoahshow.com. Highly recommend the MPOW products. I, I think they make really great headsets uh, at a budget price. Our second question comes in um, from Sloth56. says, hi, Noah. I've been looking around at various self-hosted music streaming options. I've tried the big three, MBplex and Jellyfin. None of them seem to deliver a smooth experience when streaming over LTE. Uh, ideally, it would also do movies, but I can live without that. Thoughts? Um, so there's a there's a this came in from Matrix, I believe. And so there are a couple of different uh there are a couple of different self-hosted music systems um, out there. We've talked about a couple of them in the past, and so I'll include, I'll include a couple of them in the show notes for you. Uh, one of the things that I have I have eventually kind of landed on myself is that 
I tried, I build up all this, this massive media library back in my house. And so I have all of the media there on the NAS. And the idea of having multiple different services access the same media content and just deliver it in slightly different ways is something that's becoming more and more appealing to me. Originally, I was very anti-Plex or Jellyfin. Originally, I was one of those people that just, if I couldn't do it with Cody, I really wasn't interested in doing it, primarily because every TV in my house has an NVIDIA Shield or lately Vero 4K, and that is all connected back to the NAS. And so when I click on the movies folder, I see all of the movies. When I see all of the uh, TV shows, they all just show up in there. What, where I get to with that is you can have multiple solutions referencing uh, that same library. And I've since gone back and added Jitsi, or excuse me, not Jitsi. I've since gone back and added Jellyfin and Plex to let my kids stream that content when they're out of the house. Now, there's a couple different ways you can go about doing that. Of course, you can open up the firewall and 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 do it that way. I've elected to keep everything on the inside of the LAN and just use a VPN connection uh, for the for, for my kids and anything else to get in there um, and then stream that content that way. Our next email comes in from Corey. Corey writes in and says, Hi, Noah. I've been asked to update a WordPress-based church website. It's currently hosted and managed by a local IT company, but it's been rather neglected. I could run it myself on a VPS like DigitalOcean, but I won't be able to continue to maintain it long term. Does your company do that sort of work? And who else would you recommend? Thanks for the great podcast, Corey. Yeah, absolutely. Ultraspeed Technologies absolutely does uh, that kind of work. We maintain WordPress and, and, and other sites. We've actually switched uh, primarily over um, – well, we've, we've got a couple different ways. The, the, what we try to steer people towards is static-generated sites. And so um, there's a couple of different ways you can do that. Um, our, uh, our site is run off of Nikolai, but – most of the sites that we've spin up for customers are actually run off of Hugo. Now, the advantage of Hugo or Nikolai, uh, as opposed to something like WordPress, is that it the, the site itself is static. It's generated once and it's just available. Um, whereas with WordPress, it's a dynamic site. And so uh, there are a certain amount of security implications that play a role there. And, and, and that's just one of those things where if you can reduce... Uh, the level of complexity and you can reduce the attack vector, then those are always good things. It also kind of opens up a, a couple of other things too, right? Because, because the, um, because the site is a static site, it's essentially just HTML that comes out. Uh, we can, we can treat that, uh, we can treat it a little bit more universally as, as opposed to having uh, uh, WordPress. And so you can start syncing the files back up and down uh, through GitLab, for example, and that's how we do version control and stuff like that. It also means that even if uh, Hugo itself wasn't running, we could still take the HTML, we could export all that out, and we could still uh, put up a site or, 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 or get it running. And so for a lot of reasons, um, we found that to be a, a superior way to go, but certainly we could maintain uh, WordPress for you um, as well. And and so the way that you go about doing that is contact customer care 866-280-1433, or you can send an email to help at altaspeed.com. That gets a ticket open and uh, we go from there. Our next email comes in from Mike. Mike writes in and says, good evening. I started listening to your show a few months ago and I really like what I'm learning. My question has to do with moving away from Google for storage and emails. 
I've been a big fan of them in the past, especially when it comes to Chrome OS, because of the ease and use and speed compared to Windows. But I'm becoming wary of all of the privacy implications, especially after listening to you and your cohorts. I want to move away from Gmail for personal email and find some sort of storage option that would sync the computers that I use. I have one Windows box, and I use it for a proprietary program that cannot run on Linux, and then several Linux machines for general use and experimentation. I'd like something that will help me sync files, mostly documents and music, that would be cross-platform. Right now, I'm trying SyncThing and NextCloud on my local network. I would ultimately like to have access to my files even when I'm away from home. I've looked at the possibility of buying my own domain and then using Linode or DigitalOcean to host NextCloud, but also saw that I could pay for a NextCloud partner to host it for me. My concern is mostly security, but also time for maintenance. Have you ever looked into any of the companies that offered a paid-for-service as host as NextCloud? Are they worth using as opposed to paying for a droplet to host my own? Also, would you recommend something like Mail-in-a-Box to self-host email? I understand that it could be a bit of a hassle, but if I have my own domain anyway, it could be a good learning experience. Otherwise, I'll continue to pay for customer for either ProtonMail or Tutanoa. Thanks for what you do. Thanks for the great work. Mike. So I'll start, I'll answer your questions in order. So uh, as it relates to um, uh, syncing, I have tried NextCloud Sync and I've used it for files in the past. I've just, it, it's never worked particularly well for me. It works fine for small files. They seem to sync around. But what ends up happening is when if you have any sorts of large files, particularly large video files, what ends up happening is they, uh, it, it breaks. Um, and so I've lost data, uh, lost data once, tried it again, lost data a second time, and then said, okay, I'm going to kind of back off here. Now, that's not to, to, to rag on, on, on NextCloud at all. Um, it, it, again, right tool for the right job. If you're not syncing 30, 40 gigabyte video files, I'm sure it works just fine. Um, I am a kind of a special snowflake that way because of the nature of the work that I do. Um, and so I, I have switched over to C file. Now, C file does a couple of things. First of all, from a syncing perspective, I've I have I've been syncing files uh, that are as small as a few kilobytes and as large as as twenty thirty gigs. Never had a problem. Second thing that C file allows me to do that I really appreciate is the ability to encrypt your libraries. And what that allows you to do is when you create a new C file data set, you can encrypt it. And so every time you add the new client, you have to enter in the decryption key. And that will prevent somebody from getting access to that data. One of the downsides to C file that I don't particularly see as a downside, but other people have on the server side of C file, uh, you can't access the data locally. It stores it in its own uh, in its in its own way, and so they're broken up into little uh, blocks of data. And so there have been a couple of people, more than a few people actually, that have looked at setting up C file. And when they find out that they're not able to access the data locally, then on the server, then they become upset because they say, well, I want the data to sync down to my server and I want to be able to access that when I'm local in the office. And then when I leave, then I want all those changes to sync back out. And so the way that we've gone about implementing this for customers, which I'll be the first to say is not the way that C file, I believe, recommends that you do this, is we just have those files syncing to a network share. Now, the danger in there is, and I'll, I'll like I said, this is why I, I don't believe C-File recommends this. The danger there is you have to be cognizant and intentional about writing some scripting to make absolutely sure that the network share is mounted and available before the C-File client runs because 
If it's not, C file is going to wake up and go, oh, look at that. It's an empty directory. Huh, sync. And all your data will be an empty directory. And so you don't want that. Um, I've never had an issue with C file. It seems like it will address your security uh, pretty well because it won't matter at that point. Mike, if you're running it on DigitalOcean or Linode or AWS or your own server because the data is encrypted, so they can't touch it anyway. Now, me personally, I'd probably still run it on my own server because I like running stuff on my own server. But then again, I have space in a data center, so it's not an issue to to drive a server down there and rack it. Uh, If you don't have that or you don't have the ability to have like a a static IP address or you don't have a a proper um, dynamic IP address with, uh, with dynamic DNS in place, that could be problematic. And so then I might just rent uh, a server. You're going to pay a lot of money for renting uh, storage. It's not, it's storage is one of the the more expensive things uh, to, to rent, particularly from VPS companies. Now there are, you can, you can do, th- you can add things like block storage and, and then it, it gets the price down a little bit. You can go the cheaper route and go to something like Kim Sufi and just rent the dedicated server and get tons of storage that way. But uh, storage is usually not the thing I try to buy. It's cheaper to go buy hard drives and put them in your own server if you can make that work. Now, to your second question, as it relates to email, would I host my own email? Not a chance. Not a chance. I might, I might spin up mail in the box if I wanted to learn about email and I wanted to play with email. Not a chance. I would rely on that for anything I care about. Uh, and the reason is simple. It's just a lot of work. And it's an economy of scale thing. If you have a thousand clients or 1500 clients or 2000 clients, it becomes very worthwhile your time to employ mail administrators to run a mail server and run a mail service. And so there are plenty of people at Proton Mail that are doing that very well. And so I would not say that you can't host your own email service or that it can't be done well. It's just a tremendous amount of work. And when I say a tremendous amount of work, it's not just you have to set it up and keep it up to date and all of that. It's, hey, this user can't send an email to that user. Okay, well, now we have to go dig into the log and find out what the error is. Oh, the error is that it's blacklisted. Okay, well, why are we blacklisted? We go to the site and look, okay, we're blacklisted on these nine sites. Okay, how do we get blacklisted on those nine sites? Oh, this is the thing that happened. Okay, we fixed that thing. Now we got to go tell all these sites that we're not blacklisted anymore. Could you please remove it? Oh, this one has a has a thing. You can only do it three times, and then you have to go call or you have to go through some other verification. Okay, we do that. It just, if you have the time to do it, by all means. And like I said, you specifically say in your email that, it could be a fair amount of hassle, but if you have your own domain, would it be a good learning experience? Absolutely, it'd be a great learning experience. It'll be a great learning experience uh, in, in how to set up mail, how to administrate mail, and what a tremendous gargantuan task it is to keep mail up and running well. We host a lot of services for a lot of people, everything from Nextcloud to C-File to phones, uh, 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 phone servers and file servers and FreeNAS, the whole nine yards. We don't touch mail. We just don't touch it. Um, and, and I, I worked at an organ, we did contracting for an organization. We worked there for a while. And one of the things that, that, ca- that I took away from that organization, they had four full-time mail administrators. They managed their email in-house. Didn't go well. Four full-time mail admin- administrators. And they still had downtime. Uh, and, and it is entirely possible that their mail administrators just weren't very good. It's entirely possible that maybe exchange just is really that terrible, um, but my takeaway from that was that unless you're doing it at a large enough scale and have a large enough talent pool and a large enough 
monetary resources to manage mail. I just wouldn't manage email myself. Uh, would, I would, I would encourage you to go with Proton over to Noah, to Tanoa, uh, reputation, security, those kinds of things. Uh, Google the news, but, um, really big fan of, of Proton Mail. That's where I have my mail personally, uh, for, for my, my personal email. It's also where we host all of the mail for Ask Noah. So when you're sending, uh, email in, that's all hosted uh, by Proton Mail. Um, the, the only place that I don't use Proton Mail is at AltaSpeed Technologies. And the reason for that, it's primarily a cost thing. Um, but we are internally, we're using FastMail. And the thing about FastMail is most mail services, G Suite, uh, Office 365, Proton Mail, all of them kind of revolve around this 12 to 15 bucks a person per account. Um, FastMail is considerably less expensive than that. And it's built for business. It's also built for business with privacy in mind. So they're not selling data so far as we know today. Uh, they're not selling data. They're not engaging in, 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 in those kinds of behaviors. And they also design their service around business. So for example, they support IMAP. So you can just install something like blue mail, which is great for Android or pair it to Thunderbird works just fine. And when you do that, it will generate a unique password for every instance of an IMAP connection. So your laptop gets hosed or stolen or whatever, and it gets compromised and they find that IMAP password. You simply log into your control panel and say, my work laptop was stolen. You delete that key. And now all of a sudden that password is inaccessible to anyone else. So there's, there's a little bit of security in, in mind there as, as it relates to business. But then also you go onto the phone and you have an employee and they don't know anything about setting up IMAP or whatever, because maybe you're not a tech company. Maybe you, uh, maybe you sell widgets. And so your widget maker who knows nothing about email just goes into the Google play store or the Apple iTunes store and they just download the FastMail app. They sign in with their normal username and passwords and boom, all of the resources of FastMail exist inside of that app, the calendar, the notes, the contacts, the mail, the whole nine yards. It has some uh, kind of, kind of, what I think are, are, are really useful administrative features. So I can open the mailbox of, of any user, uh, that's, that's in the organization, which we really like from an administration standpoint. And particularly if, 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 um, employees are let go or they quit, um, it's easy to keep an eye on those mailboxes. So for a lot of reasons, FastMail has served us incredibly well, uh, for a business solution. We recommend it quite often. Um, but I, I just can't in good, good conscience suggest that you host your, your own e- email unless, Unless your primary uh, your primary motivation there is to learn, in which case, sky's the limit. Our third email comes in from Adam. Adam writes in and says, "Hi Noah, I'm an intermediate level Linux admin, and I'm looking to sharpen my skills and challenge myself. I'm looking to fill in the gaps. Mostly, I'm self-taught. I've heard you recommend Red Hat certifications before. What's the best way to get started? And is there a book or course that I could take if I'm interested in some training? I've used Plural Sight in the past. My company paid for it, and I enjoyed it. But I tend to zone out watching videos more than I do a book. Thanks, Adam." So I'll start by telling you this, Adam, I'm the wrong guy to ask because I zone out when I try to read a book and I'm far more, uh, I'm far, if I, if I, if I'm going to read a book, I, I'll typically do it in an audio book. And then as I'm driving from one site to the other, I'll, I'll, I'll listen. I have taken, uh, I've done, I've done the original Red Hat course. I've gone to the Red Hat training and done it with a Red Hat instructor. That's great. You will learn a lot. One of the first things that I tell people when they look at training and certification, and as you put it, sharpening your skills a lot of times the the value in training and the value in certification is is threefold. The first is you get to ask questions. 
having the opportunity to sit across the room from somebody who has been doing something longer than you and ask them questions about how and why they do things that way and then bounce ideas. Hey, I found myself in this situation and this happened. How would you have dealt with that or how would you have responded to this? Those kinds of things I found to be incredibly valuable. So as far as training goes, that's what I would consider to be the number one value of getting training. Now, the second thing is this. You're in a room with a bunch of other people that are learning the same concepts and doing the same thing that you're doing. And so that provides a level of community and a level of networking. A lot of the people that I've gone through training at some point, I still uh, maintain contact with. And I still we to this day, uh, we still bounce back and forth and say, hey, at my site, I'm doing this. At your site, you're doing that. Can you help me? Can I help you? Uh, there is a networking effect that is there. And then the third thing that I think is valuable in training, and this is true whether it's in person or whether it's through a video or for, through a book, it legitimizes and cements the things that you think are true, but you weren't quite sure were best practice. There were a number of things that I would do that I always thought to myself, I'm like, I don't really know if that's the right way to do it. I just, that's the way I've kind of always done it. And I, I hope, and then a red instructor who's been doing it for 20 years comes in and says, here's the way I do it. I'm like, Hey, that's an accepted way to do that. And so that confidence boost and that ability to walk into a client or an employer or whatever and say, yep, this is the way I do it and this is why and not have to worry uh, about getting shot down and like, well, don't you know the best practices, right? And that's – I'm self-taught or I was self-taught at one time. That's what – I there's that, there's, that, there's that little voice in the back of your head that's like, are you sure? Are you sure? And so training kind of alleviates that a little bit. Uh, as far as where to get training – if you have the money, if you have the budget, particularly if your employer is paying for it, I would strongly encourage you to consider going to an in-person training class. Now, during COVID, I'm guessing that in-person training probably is not a thing, or if it is, it's highly mitigated. But when as close as you can get to having an instructor, if you can't get that, have somebody that is available to you. So one of the things I like about Udemy is they in, they have contact information for some of their instructors. And so when you're taking a course from them, if you have questions, you get you don't get the networking experience, but you do get the ability to ask questions and have things answered. So I've taken courses from you, Demi. There's another company called VTC, VTC.com. And what I like about VTC is it whereas Udemy is kind of like a subscription, you pay for it and then it's and then you have access to their online material. With VTC, they actually send you like a DVD, I think they also have it available on demand or whatever, but they send you a DVD with all of the content. And if you have the content available, then you can rip that and you can have it on your computer. You can do it offline. You can do it on an airplane. I did my last RHCSA uh, training and certification on a flight over to Japan. Uh, and I did that with the VC VTC training. Now, I will tell you, I did, I did in a row, I did uh, Red Hat 7 through Red Hat with their uh, with their course, drove to a Red Hat testing facility or a, a training facility, did the whole nine yards. I did Red Hat or uh, Red Hat eight on VTC. I did not see much of a difference in terms of uh, in terms of building skill and in terms of learning the new material. Now, part of that comes from I'm just trying to uh, I'm just trying to understand what has changed from one version to the next. I'm not starting uh, from ground zero, but it sounds like you are not either. Um, so hopefully those are helpful to you. Uh, Conan Kudo in the chat room suggests a book, RHCSA, the Red Hat Enterprise Linux 8 Updated Training and Exam Preparation, EX200 Second Edition. Uh, and this is available from Amazon. So if you're looking for a book, that might be one uh, to check out. I will have a link for you uh, for that book 
in the show notes, podcast.asknoahshow.com. Our last email comes in from Brendan. Brendan uh, writes in and says, Hello and good day. I'm an enthusiast and just getting back into Linux. An aspect of accessibility that is overlooked is the GUI. My left hand has severe nerve damage and I'm unable to feel my thumb or pointer finger and half of my middle finger. Unable to type at any speed. I'm unable to join in the chat and stuff online and keep up. Any ideas how I might accomplish this? Also, if not for the GUIs, I would not. I would be unable to use Linux very well. Love the GUI. Have an amazing day. P.S. Mom. Hi, Mom, if you read this on air. So Brendan says hi to, to his mom. Hi, Brendan's mom. Um, So here's where I would start. I would start with this. Uh, at the risk of being a, a KDE fanboy, KDE provides a tremendous amount of flexibility to uh, to adapt to a wide range of working environments. Now, I'm going to take this in kind of a weird direction. I don't have... A, uh, I don't have any sort of disability. Um, and so to a certain extent, they're largely, uh, I can't relate to probably the struggles that, that you deal with. However, <laughs> the small area that, that, that kind of rings in my head and says, Oh, I think I know what he's talking about. When I, uh, my wife and I have drastically different sleep schedules. She likes to go to bed on time at like eight o'clock, uh, you know, in the evening. I'm like, that's halfway through the day. 3 a.m. is kind of my power hour. Um, and, and so we don't want to be just separated and not see each other. So what we've kind of come together on is she lays down on the bed and she goes to sleep. I have a special contraption that uh, it basically is a platform that, that sits underneath the bed. And then from the platform comes up a, an adjustable post. And on the post is mounted a monitor and a keyboard and a mouse. Uh, and so I can just pull that little tray and it comes over my side of the bed. Now that's useful for two things. First of all, it's useful because when I wake up at three in the morning and somebody says, uh, we get an alert that a server's down or what needs to be restarted or whatever the thing is, I don't actually have to get out of bed. I just wipe the sleep from my eyes, pull my thing over, do the thing, push it back, fall back asleep. I'm good to go. But oftentimes if I'm, I'm laying in bed, we're watching a movie or something like that. And I'm, and I'm just kind of off the corner of my eye, kind of working on it. I don't have both of my hands free, right? Because I'm, I'm sitting there and we're cuddling or doing whatever. And so I have my, I, I use a trackball mouse and what I've gotten into the habit of doing is using the on-screen keyboard on board. Now this allows me with uh, combined with a trackball, cause it doesn't work. Ter- I haven't found it to work anyway, terribly well with the, with a regular mouse. Um, just not as fast, not as precise. Um, but with a trackball, Onboard allows you to resize the keyboard to as large or small as you want. So when I'm sitting further back from the display and I, you know, and I'm, and I'm not trying to type quickly, I'm just trying to peck something out. I can make the keyboard much larger and I, I have way more room. When I get down to, I have to do something in the terminal and now I'm doing it with the mouse and I'm clicking on, 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 on buttons on the on-screen keyboard. I shrink the keyboard down and I find I'm actually able to keep up with element conversations and stuff like that, uh, all with one hand with a, a trackball, uh, using onboard. So again, I'm not, I'm probably not the best person to ask about somebody who has a disability because I, I don't have one, but, but, to the extent that I can share with you what I've learned on, on how to operate KDE with one hand, I have figured that out and it seems to work well enough for me. So you might give that a shot. Obviously, here's what's going to happen now. Uh, a lot of other people in the community, they are going to be struggling with this as well. And so a lot of people are going to write in over the pe- next few weeks and they will tell us um, what tips and tricks they're using to deal with uh, with inaccessibility uh, through the GUI. So 
you do not not on KD, give that a shot. If you don't have onboard, give that a shot and check back in the next few weeks as hopefully other people will start to write in. I'll also take this opportunity to say if you aren't writing in feedback, we're doing feedback in a whole new way. If you write in feedback, the way that it's working now is send in your feedback. We take all of those issues, we divide them up into categories, and then we use that to structure how we do the show. So segments and those kinds of things are based off of what you find interesting or the questions you're asking. You can send those questions to live at asknoahshow.com. I got, sorry, one last email, email five comes in and um, this is from, we don't have a name, but guy writes in and, oh, Jeremy, Jeremy writes in and says, hi, Noah, do you have an affiliate link for registerforless.com? If so, would you please send it? Um, so I don't have an affiliate link for registerforless.com, but I will take just a moment to address why I so strongly like register for less. Fourteen ninety nine a year, uh, for registering a domain, they include privacy, which a lot of other domain registers do not. Some do, not all. Um, and so they will hide your ICANN data. So if somebody tries to look up who owns the domain, it'll just say privacy redacted, contact abuse at registerforless.com. And then they will contact you and say, oi, someone's looking for you. They include free email aliasing. So if you want an email address, if you want people to be able to send things uh, to, to, you know, you at your domain.com, you can do that without ever having to pay for an actual email address and just have that forwarded to a, to a real email address. They also include free 10 megabytes of web hosting. Now it doesn't include SSL, which is why asknowashow.com doesn't have SSL. That's going to get changed in, in the next few months. Um, and they support sub accounts for managing. So at AltaSpeed, for example, we have a lot of technicians that have to go manage domains for other companies. Register for Less allows us to set up sub accounts for each one of those organizations and then dole out so that those technicians only have access to a certain subset of domain. And then the biggest reason, their customer service is amazing. They're a Canadian company. I, I think from the time that I send a support ticket in to the time I get the issue, not just answered, but usually resolved, is usually just a few hours. And if you pick up the phone and call them, they'll resolve it for you right then and there. Um, so just a fantastic company. I've had nothing but great experience for them. You've been using them for the last 15 years. Uh, have every intention of, in fact, altaspeed.com and asnoahshow.com, with I think the last time I, re- I registered them, I, I renewed them for like 10 years. So I'll be there for at least the next 10. And you can learn more at registerforless.com, but there is no uh, referral code. Our pick of the week this week. I got to set this up. So Wednesday, I get a phone call from our program director at KNOX AM. It's one of the radio stations that I do some on-air work for. Now, we already do... uh, we were already doing play-by-play, and our our program director is a, the guy that actually does the play-by-play. So he goes out to the sports arena, and he calls the game and tells the listener what it is uh, that they're seeing. Turns that into to uh, to radio. Um, but this time, they it was the championship games for the hi- local high schools, and they wanted a way to stream that. Now, I had in the past built a Linux streaming rig specifically to get the 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 best uh, stability and performance that we could for the price and indeed it's worked very very well um but this time there was a new twist uh the twist was they wanted to update the score in real time now a little bit of backstory on this box it's a Dell XPS uh chassis that we have loaded 2004 Magwell USB capture cards that are being delivered into a dedicated quad bus PCI USB interface so the PCI interface goes in the back, then you get four dedicated USB ports, each with its own USB bus controller on it, and then we plug the Magwell cards into there. Now, typically what I've done is taken a C920, put it on a separate tripod, and pointed towards the scoreboard, then I crop out the the actual score for the home and the, the guest, and I just, once I have those shots composed, then I just place those in the appropriate 
place in the in the frame so that it looks like the score is just updating. Um, but this time we didn't have it. We could only do one camera. It's a long story. But we only had the ability to do one camera. Part of it was we were literally had to put this together in like six hours. Um, and so what we ended up. So I, I, I the first game, it worked. But it. We what we tried to do was put the te- we tried to use a text element and just go and edit the text element in OBS to, to update the score. As you can imagine, it works. It's just incredibly cumbersome and it wasn't really that great. And so we we got done and I was like, we can do better. So I set out to find a better solution. Enter OpenIAS. You can learn more at OpenIAS.GaryKim.Dev. Uh, this is a scorekeeping software, completely open source, completely cross platform. And, uh, provides for scorekeeping. It provides a game clock. It has the ability for hotkeys to either count up or down the score, start or stop the clock, the ability to adjust on the fly. Obviously, there are key bindings to do all of that. It has the ability to set team logos below each of the scores. You could have multiple scoreboard tabs. So if you're doing multiple, you're keeping track of multiple games at one time, you're able to do that. The control window is separate from the scoreboard display. And I, I'll get to why this is so critical, uh, I'll just tell you right now, it's critical because it allowed the way that I set it up was I was just capturing the window in OBS and then essentially, you know, cropping out the scores what I wanted and then placing them in the right place. But long term, my plan is to run this on a separate machine. Then the control window will be a separate output on a separate monitor. The separate monitor, of course, will be another SDI or HDMI capture into the broadcast rig. The control then runs on a little laptop or whatever. And you get a, a a pristine image that's coming in just like an SDI source, just like a, another camera source, but this time it's the score. comes packaged as an app image. Again, completely cross-platform. Of course, it's open source. Uh, you can learn more, openias.garykim.dev. The only thing I really didn't like about it was the control window has to be open and in focus for the shortcuts to work. Now, to a certain degree, I understand it. It makes sense. The problem is if... And there wouldn't be an issue if it was on a separate machine, right? Because then we just it would always be in focus, and then that would be the score control machine. The problem is when you're running it on the same machine that OBS is running on, and you have to deal with switching OBS scenes with hotkeys, and now we're dealing with augmenting the score in OpenIS, it was a little bit cumbersome. But we're going to get there, and I just – it's amazing to me. It's incredible to me that I can sit down and – and the way that conversation went was something like this. Hey, I saw this guy that was out there and he had software that was keeping track of his score. I want software to keep track of my score. And so, of course, the next question out of my mouth is, well, what was the name of the software? We'll have to go pick up a copy thinking we're going to have to get something to run. And and he says, well, I don't know. And I said, all right, well, if I'm going to go looking for software, I'm going to go looking for software that I know I can rely on that isn't going to have vendor lock-in, that's going to be stable, that's going to be secure, and it's going to work. Lo and behold, the open source community does not let me down, openias.garykim.dev. OpenIS scoreboard, absolutely fantastic. Save my butt this week. Our gadget of the week is the Bit Barista, the fully autonomous coffee machine built using a Raspberry Pi. Now, I want to be clear. There are a lot of coffee makers out there with Wi-Fi. This coffee maker may have Wi-Fi, but it does so much more. A University of Edinburgh project might just be the fully, the first fully autonomous business. The 
Pi-powered BitBarista accepts Bitcoin payments to dispense coffee, pays users to restock supplies, and will even call a technician should a fault occur. They're using Bitcoin from the coffee sales. The BitBarista then pays people for small services, such as filling its water tank and replenishing its coffee beans. When the coffee stock runs low, the BitBarista asks the user to select a restock vendor. Those options can be ranked in order of price. They can be ranked in order of ethical preference. At the heart of it, it's a Raspberry Pi. It's controlling the BitBarista using Raspberry. And then they use Electrum to deal with the Bitcoin payments. Code is available on github.com slash digital Westy slash BitBarista. Of course, we'll have a link for you in the show notes, podcast.asknoahshow.com. This is an entire coffee business inside of one unit. So a person comes up, they pay for the coffee in Bitcoin. It spits out the coffee. They take it. They walk away. If the next user comes up and it needs something, then it will pay the user to do some of the stuff. So it's a self-sustaining model. I'm telling you, this is the future because we are going to get to a point where we are going to leverage technology and make it subservient to us. And we're getting so close. And the fact that stuff like this is taking off with open source code is amazing because you can go build one of these things and put it in your house. The next business owner that wants to start up a cafe can go build one of these and put it there. The guy in Africa or the, or, or in some other third world country who wants to, wants to start a business, doesn't really have an idea or doesn't have, uh, you know, all of the things that you need. All you need is a Raspberry Pi and I, I suppose access to the internet so that it can process the Bitcoin payments. But the idea here is anybody can do this because it's commodity hardware. It's, it, the, the, the software is available online, uh, and it's free. So, uh, BitBarista, you can learn more. We'll have a link for you in the show notes. I highly recommend you checking out a video of this thing working and the pictures of it. It's absolutely fantastic. In the news this week, Gnome 40 is adding or revamping, I should say, multi-monitor support. So uh, this comes with some changes to the way that we deal with workspaces. By default, the workspace changes on the primary monitor. But of course, Gnome 40 supports changing workstations on all displays. Well, with GNOME 40, there is the introduction of the workspace navigator on the second display. So when you have a multi-monitor setup and you look at that second display, you're going to get indication of which workspace you're on and which workspace you'd like to switch to. They're going to transition to horizontal workspaces. So right now, the way that GNOME works is it, 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 it scales vertically. So you switch workspaces. One is on the top, two, three, four, up and down, right? They're going to switch that to go horizontal. They're also introducing additional shortcuts, which will align with this new horizontal layout. So the new shortcut switch, uh, but between workspaces are, are going, is going to be the super key plus alt plus the left or right arrow. Moving windows between workspaces will be the super key alt shift left and right arrow. Super key plus alt will also open the overview and the app grid super alt and the down arrow, I'm sorry, super alt and the up arrow will open up the overview and the app grid. Super alt down arrow will close them. And so one of the things that I think is of note here is the most inefficient part of human interface devices, of anything that we've done on a computer, is having to switch between the devices. It's not so, I was talked about in the feedback segment. It's not so much that I can't run the entire computer with a trackball. I can. It's not so much that I can't run the entire computer with a keyboard. In the case of Xmonad, I can. Where the, where, where it kind of falls apart is when you have to switch between the mouse and the keyboard. It's inefficient. 
And so if I could do everything on the mouse, that would be great. If I can do everything on the keyboard, that would be great. I hate having to switch between the two. The more things that we can integrate into keyboard shortcuts, the more efficient this is all going to work. And so I'm glad to see that the GNOME team is really taking and digging in seriously into thinking about, hey, we have these workspaces, we have these tasks divided up into multiple spaces. How do I quickly, easily, and efficiently jump between those two or between multiple workspaces? Now, on top of that, what if you're not a keyboard person? How does GNOME address that? Well, they give you the ability to control it from the mouse as well. These directional keyboard shortcuts have matching touchpad gestures. Three finger swipes left and right will switch workspaces. Three finger swipes up and down will open the overview and app grid. Now, I want to stop right there and say, in the, last week we talked about the, some of the research that GNOME had done to try to understand their users and understand uh, what users' expectations were of a desktop environment. The takeaway from that was this. If they imitate or they replicate what is being done on other platforms, people understand it because they're used to it. When you do something totally new and crazy and out in the open, then that's where people get confused. So part of that is my job to help you understand. That's why I'm reading these key shortcuts on the air so that you can say, hey, I'm in Gnome 40, I'm in Bernoulli, so I'm in Shift-Alt, whatever. The other side of that, though, is when people sit down and they can just very naturally swipe up, swipe down with three fingers and and activate those critical functions of their desktop environment, again, lowers the friction for that user to start getting their work done, increases efficiency, and they're not taking their hand off the mouse now. Now, if they're, they're on a mouse and they were using it and they were doing something on a mouse, they can switch applications, launch a new application, close an application, get to the upgrade, switch workspaces, the whole nine yards. Some people, excuse me, how it's worth pointing out that, uh, excuse me, a few people have pointed out that the horizontal workspaces aren't as clean as horizontal, horizontal multi-monitor setups. The concern is that when multiple displays are horizontal, they end up clashing with the layouts of the workspaces. There is some truth to this, and we recognize that some users might need to adjust some of the aspects aspects of this design. However, it's worth pointing out that horizontal workspaces are a feature of every other desktop out there. Not only is it every other the way that every other desktop does it, but it's also how GNOME used to do it prior to GNOME 3.0 and how GNOME's classic mode continues to do it. Therefore, we feel that horizontal workspaces and horizontally arranged displays can get along just fine. If anyone's concerned about this, we'd suggest that you give it a try and see how it goes. Some people have asked why we're making to the change to horizontal workspaces at all, which is fair. I think there needs to be, I think there needs to be understood that horizontal workspaces are fundamental design and we're pursuing it in 40. The flip, the, the film strip of workspaces, which proved to be an effective in testing, the clear organization of the overview and the coherent touchpad gestures, a dash that can more comfortably scale to include items and so on. This is facilitated by the workspace orientation change. It would not be possible without it. Again, what I would ask you, if you're one of the people that are concerned about them making this change or thinking, hey, why, why are they making those changes? What I would encourage you to do is consider what the what the perception is to somebody who's never used GNOME before but has used other operating systems or has used other uh, other platforms. They are going to come into that platform, this platform with a given set of expectations. Now, I'm not a GNOME user today. Uh, I've quite happy on KDE and I plan to stay there for, for quite some time, but I'll be the first to say that if there's going to be some work done on a competing desktop environment, I would absolutely like to see 
the most prolific desktop environment out there because, let's face it, it's the default on Ubuntu, it's the default on Fedora, it's the default on CentOS, the default on Red Hat. It's just the default desktop on a lot of dis- on a lot of distributions. It makes sense to me that you would try to meet users where they are and give them an easy way to, to onboard onto this new desktop environment. Secondly, uh, well, that, that's really it. I, I really believe that we should meet users where they are. And so to the GNOME team's credit, what they're doing is trying to better understand their users. I also want to, again, give credit where credit's due. Coming out with blog posts like this and explaining this in a clear, concise method, here's what we tried, here's what didn't work, here's what worked, here's why we're doing this, here's how it is. If Even if you don't agree with why they're making the changes they're making to the desktop environment, at least you understand the changes that they're making to the desktop environment. And then when you go to use it, you can take advantage of those features because you know they're there because they've explained them. And so that that very open, out in the open way of doing things, they're addressing people's concerns. They're, 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 they're not bending to them. They're saying, hey, some people are concerned about this. We're going to do it anyway. To me, that is the that is the sign of a long-term successful desktop environment. So kudos to the GNOME team. We'll continue to watch the changes as they roll on in GNOME. 40. Cody 19 is out. Nearly 50 individual open source developers have contributed code to Cody 19, about 5,000 commits, over 1,500 pull requests since the release of Cody 18, codenamed Leah. Over 5,500 changed files with some 600,000 lines of code added, changed, or removed. And of course, countless hours of dedicated free time conveying, designing, developing, testing to include all of the infrastructure that you see and the website. Now, if you're not familiar with Kodi, Kodi is a piece of software that you can install and turns your computer into a full-function multimedia center. It can play movies. It can play TV shows. It can play music. You can browse to files and 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 play all sorts of different kinds of media. Additionally, it has library functionality so that, um, you know, it will scrape from IMDb the movie cover and the description and the actors and all those kinds of things. I recently purchased the Vero 4K, which, in my opinion, is the absolute best dedicated Kodi player out there. Uh, the, and so I was super excited to see that Kodi 19 has been released. Now, it's codenamed Matrix, uh, no relationship to Matrix, the software, but it is taking a play on Matrix, the movie. We'll get to that in a second. So there are some significant improvements across the board to metadata handling, the way that the the library deals with metadata, library improvements, uh, new tags, new displays, improvements to how Kodi handles release dates, album durations, and multi-disc sets. I I, I was uh, my my uh, my we watched Titanic for the first time with my kids. It's a two disc set, and uh, that took me a little bit to kind of get my head wrapped around how Kodi processed the fact that it's one movie, but it's spread out over two discs. And so uh, happy to see that there's some improvements being there. I referenced the Matrix, the movie. A new Matrix-inspired visualization is now present. There are improvements to the display when fetching files from a web server and several changes to how the audio decoder add-ons can pass information to the Kodi players. Uh, There's also for people that combine libraries of both music and video, present, that's me, uh, there are some goodies there as well. Database and metadata display improvements, which will mean that Cody can now fetch and display related album and artist information from the music library where appropriate. So to give you some context, the way that it worked in, uh, in, in, in Cody 18 is you would open a folder full of music and you'd click on it and it would play the file. And that was basically it. I have not played with Cody 19. 
Uh, I looked to see if it was available on my shield. It was not. I'm going to try the VR 4K later tonight. I'll report back next week. But uh, to get a more music, a, 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 a better interface that is more designed around streaming music, I think would be fantastic. And so I'm happy to see that improvements are being made there. There's also some new features around grouping video by artist, not just album. Support for NFO files that list all performers instead of just the main artist, plus better search links to return related album and videos by the same director. Uh, the screen redesign. Every, every time they redo a, or every time they release a new update, of course they want to deal with the user interface and try to make that a little bit more polished. And they've certainly done that this time, especially for music, new metadata, metadata display changes to the playlist views. They now have a now playing view, uh, art, which, let me stop right there. That alone, uh, again, when I play with it, I'll, I'll know for sure if it solved this problem, but numerous times I'll be inside of a video or a movie and I'll accidentally hit the back button and then I have to go all the way back out and then go all the way back in to get rid of that menu. I've not found a quicker way to do that. It'd be great to go back to just whatever I was watching, pull that back up. So happy to see if, again, assuming the now play works the way that I interpret it, think that it will work. Um, it often looked an often overlooked feature, but immensely useful to so many people. Subtitles. That got some attention in this release. Timestamp overlays got fixed. Plus, you can now select a dark gray color and set an opacity for the captions, which is particularly useful in HDR to protect your eyes. And kids, you'll, of course, miss them when you're gone. <laughs> uh, they finally made the wholesale move to Python 3, as you're, as most of you are aware, Python uh, two is is is, uh, is is getting a little long in the tooth, and so they have ported a lot of their add-ons. Uh, much of the community has done so as well, and so hopefully most of your add-ons are going to still work. Uh, they do note that at the end of the day, they are beholden to the third-party app developers to actually do that. And so if they've not updated their add-ons, then of course they won't, but um, most people have. Cody19 also replaces the old XML metadata scrapers. Uh, with the new default Python for movies and TV shows. And of course, there's new Python scrapers for music, uh, which help with generic album scraping, artist scraping, and binary add-ons that get additional improvements to the system documentation, cleaned up some of the settings dialogues, and some better help text. Uh, another significant part of Kodi that's gotten a lot of attention this release is that most features revolve around usability. And PVR, so on-screen live TV, the PVR reminders, home screen widgets, group channel manager enhancements, navigation, dialogue controls, context menu, new live finale and premiere tags, channel numbering, sorting, performance improvements, API improvements, all of those have all landed in Cody 19. And so if you're one of those people that watches live TV and wants to uh, retrieve your live TV or get your live TV through Cody, um, a lot of new stuff is on the horizon for you. So I'd invite you to check that out. Again, you can learn more uh, by going to Cody.tv. That's K-O-D-I.tv. We'll have all of the links and references in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Nextcloud Hub 21 has been released. A high-performance backend for NextCloud files is what they focused on. It reduced the server load time for desktop clients and the web interface by polling 90% while delivering instant notifications to users. So the performance has gotten, they say, 10x better. They've also added some collaboration features to include a whiteboard. We'll talk about that as the show goes on. A wide range of performance improvements all over the top, decreasing loading times of pages while reducing load on the server. Again, they have some new collaborative features, a new whiteboard, author's colors in text and document templates to increase team productivity. I'll tell you, I was sitting at a client site 
And I was watching a meeting unfold. And a lot of people were jotting down on paper. Some people weren't taking notes at all. Some people were just typing. There's a guy sitting there with a tablet. He's writing on his tablet. And it was incredible to me the level of information that he had access to and the speed at which he was able to document the way this meeting was going down because he was just writing collaborative real time. And, and the guy sitting next to him was they're kind of doing this together. Uh, we're, we're, we're able to work together like that. And I started, I thought right then and there, I was like, man, that's really, that is the way to really plan or think or sketch something out. I never really thought about how you would do that over the internet, but it makes perfect sense to me that you'd want to do that over the internet, particularly if you deal with an asynchronous company that, uh, that all its employees maybe don't live all in one place. Having a collaborative whiteboard and the ability to sketch out things and kind of design and plan that way, absolutely fantastic. There's been some improvements to Nextcloud Talk. Nextcloud Talk debuts message status indicators, a raise hand feature, and group conversation descriptions. So uh, when I talked to Frank the last time he was on the program, I asked him, I said, are you looking to integrate Nextcloud Talk into Matrix or integrate Matrix into Nextcloud Talk? And he said, yes, indeed, they've done that. And so the bridging on Matrix works very well. Uh, and so if you are a Matrix user, now I'm talking about Matrix, the messaging software, not Matrix, the movie, not Matrix, the uh, new release of Cody. Um, if you're using, if you're a Matrix user, you can tie that to NextCloud Talk. And so if your organization says, hey, for the most part, we're going to have people sign up. And the only resource that these people need to do that is uh, NextCloud Talk. And that's how people are going to communicate. Again, you're not left out in the cold if you're one of those crazy adopters that says, hey, I want to own my own communication infrastructure. It's going to work just fine for you. Um, we've been playing with this at AltaSpeed. Of course, we use NextCloud, but our Team communication all happens over Element, and so we've looked at ways of the best way to tie Element into Nextcloud. There's indeed a number of different ways to do that. I like, though, that it's not just a, hey, we have talk, and then you can tie it to something else, or now you can chat, good luck, right? There's always continue. Uh, there's always continuing improvements, and so if you didn't want to have a separate messaging system and you wanted everything to happen right through Nextcloud, you now have that opportunity. There's also a wide range of groupware improvement to include drag and drop, nicer threading in mail, syncing social media avatars in context, in context, excuse me. So uh, lots of improvements to Nextcloud Hub 21. You can read more at their blog at nextcloud.com. Of course, we'll have a link for you to that blog at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Firefox 86 has been released. Um, Really, not a lot to say here. The the big thing with Firefox 86 is total cookie protection. And this is a new major milestone. This is what the Mozilla team has been working for, uh, working towards, actually, rather. They, in, in, in Firefox, in the last release of Firefox, they, they began to try to target uh, keeping sites from doing cross-site tracking. And so they have iterated on that. Again, each site now gets its own cookie jar. And so there's no way for a site to embed a cookie and then track it across other sites. Additionally, they've they've uh they've introduced something called multiple video picture in picture so that you can have multiple videos running. I'll be honest with you, I read it a couple of times. I looked to see if I could find some more information about why somebody would want to watch multiple videos at the same time, picture in picture. I'm not exactly sure. If you have a reason, I'd love to hear about it at live at asknoshow.com. Um, but that is another feature of Firefox 86. They've also fixed a number of things. The reader mode now works with local HTML pages. Orca and other screen reader fixes have been have been done. The reader view links 
uh, have more color contrast. And of course, they have uh, completed a number of various security fixes. Again, I understand that Mozilla has made some questionable decisions. I understand that the decisions that Mozilla makes as it relates to their employees and their future is sometimes has some questions. Some of the new things that they roll out in terms of agreements with advertising have some questions. But what I find every time I read the release about a new Firefox is that this continues to be a company dedicated to user privacy. And a lot of the features that they roll out are to keep the Internet private and to keep you as a user private when you're out browsing the Internet. And so you have the freedom and flexibility to go research medical information, to go find doctors, to go communicate to do all of the things you want to do on the internet without having to worry about what some company is tracking or doing. Hey, the music in my ears means we're out of time. I thank you for listening to this episode of the Ask Noah Show. We record it every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. You can join us live at AskNoahShow.com. Participate in the discussion in our interactive chat room. Starting next week, the live site is going to change. We rolled out a new live infrastructure. It's ParachuteLive.tv. We're using Matrix to power the chat, HTML5 to embed the video. It's basically Twitch, except it's completely open source and uses all open source tools. That's next week. ParachuteLive.tv. More information to come. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.